Hey, I like oh. doing video chats because then I can pull my foot up on the desk and show you how gross my injury is. Whiskey, whiskey, the singer's getting sore. We raise the roof now when we're lowering the floor. The band is blistered, but we got a little more. When I say one, two, Welcome to the Whiskey Topic, the weekly podcast that tends to get off topic. My name is Mark Bylock. I'm the author of the Whiskey Cabinet, and my co-host is Jamie Johnson, who runs a private but approachable bourbon club here in Toronto, Canada. You can also find our podcast on the website whiskey.buzz. If you want to know the song On and on goes the ring of the bell uh, Do you have a drink with you? Um, you know what? I'm sitting right next to my liquor cabinet, so yes. All right. I, was, I would suggest <laughs> uh, if, you're, if you're open to it I on like an afternoon. I like that bottle. I see, for... I see you've got the Pikesville oh, rye. Well. So I have a funny story about the first time I tried Pikesville rye. Um, uh-huh. Not so much funny haha as in like funny, amazing, and wonderful and can only happen in bourbon country. Um, so I was at a cocktail party with the Whiskey Chicks and um, Charlie Downs, who is the artisanal distiller at the Evan Williams Bourbon Experience, came over to me and poured me a little bit of the Pikesville rye. And I, I took a sip and I said, wow, this is amazing. He's like, yep, I made that. And I was just like, wow, <laughs> wow. only in Louisville, only in bourbon country can this happen. Uh, <laughs> awesome. So we, we love your Kentucky yeah, whiskey absolutely. makers. They, they do not lack confidence. Love it. I mean, he, I he is, he's one of the coolest cats around. I so let's see. That. What am I what am I going to grab here? Yeah, oh, what are you going to reach for? Um, reach for like an old favorite. Something that has a story, perhaps, I think, uh, is always good You know good what? One. I've got, okay, so... I'm going to open this up because I wanted to talk about this one anyway. Um, okay. So, so I'm cracking open my media sample of the Four Roses Elliott Select right now. And this is a 14-year-old wow. OESK. So I went out to Four Roses um, on Monday and did a tasting with Brent Elliott of this. And it was pretty phenomenal. Wow. I'm going to have to get a glass for this and not be an animal and drink it wow. right out of the bottle. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> As, as you do this, should we introduce episode yeah, 63? Let's do it. <laughs> the whiskey hey, topic. We're just dying right uh, now. Let's, let's just do this. Let's just, let's just say hello. Um, we're here today with Maggie. Now, Maggie sent me a long description of what she does. Uh, Maggie's basically uh, the center of, in the center of Louisville. Um, she writes for uh, the Whiskey Wash. She's the Bourbon County editor for the Whiskey Wash. Um, she's Michael Veek's sidekick. Now, uh, Michael Veek, uh, I, I met him a couple of times. Uh, we'll, we'll have Maggie tell a few stories about him. Um, she's also contributes to the Alcohol Professor, Whiskey Magazine, several other publications. Used to be a podcaster. Um, yeah, like Maggie, your um, your list is. In I no do short. all the things. <laughs> you do pretty much everything in Louisville. If it has whiskey and something else yes. next to it, you're like whiskey and cigars. Yeah. I'm doing that. Um, Living so the dream. So excited to have you on the you show. Know it, yeah. You know it. Yes. Excellent. Yes. Why don't I have you on to kind of get that idea of Kentucky and Louisville and um, and you do hang around with the most interesting. Oh, yeah. In no, Kentucky. I mean, like this is if you're going to do what I do, like really being in in Louisville is the best way to do it. I mean, sure. there are lots of other cool places and lots of other cool people who are, you know, various other locations. But Louisville truly is the center of the bourbon universe. And, you know, there are lots mm-hmm. of people say, oh, no, it's Bardstown. And, oh, no, what about Lexington? And, meh, 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 meh. and I'm like, no. I mean, for historically, Louisville it has been the center of the bourbon universe because this is where all the bourbon shipped out of. This is where all the major distilleries have had offices since the beginning of time. Uh, you know, this is where, you know, legend has it 
Evan Williams was Kentucky's first commercial distiller, and his distillery was right downtown in Louisville, right across the street from the Evan Williams experience. So, you know, historically, we've got Whiskey Row, and we've got all kinds of, you know, offices and headquarters, and and lots of people got their start here. You know, W.L. Weller got his start here. Um, Brown Foreman got their start here with George Garvin Brown pre-prohibition, you know, late, I think he started in 1870-something, 1876 maybe. And uh, so lots of huge names. Pappy Van Winkle started as a salesperson for the W.L. Weller Company in Louisville. So all these people who started off, who have come become huge household names in bourbon, have some sort of association with Louisville. You're nine hours away from us by probably car and or flight, because there's no direct right. flights. And you're arguing over like an hour and a half drive. No, no, no. Bartstown's <laughs> BS. Forget Bartstown. That's bullshit. That's not where Kentucky's from. Louisville, well, this is know, where Kentucky's from. Bardstown. It's Bardstown is a beautiful, beautiful town, and I love it. And every time I drive through Bardstown, I'm like, oh, I want to live here. This is beautiful. You know, but... Uh, as far as, you know, you can't really, they, they trademarked the whole, um, gosh, what, what do they call themselves? The bourbon capital of the world. Yeah, they trademarked that. And to be sure, there is a lot of bourbon business going on in Bardstown. There are lots of barrels aging there. But every company that has a distillery there or is aging barrels there or whatever has an office or some sort of tie to Louisville. So... Yeah, so Jamie and I are basically like this of, of Toronto, anything north of like Gerard or, or I, I guess Dundas, Bloor Street, no, north of Bloor Street is basically a similar conversation we've had. North York, there's nothing there's in North nothing York. Why, why are they worried? You don't Toronto want anything up there. It's is so the center far. of the Canadian whiskey blogger universe. There you go. There you go. That's Wait, you all, you all are in, in, you're in Toronto, right? Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes, yes you did. You did. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, and we and Mark and I love Louisville and we love to visit and and uh, you know I, I'm excited to have you on because we sort of get a an inside perspective. Like we've done a podcast on our 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 trips and we you know we tend to hit the the places that we're taken to and that you know um, we've sort of heard through the grapevine. But it's always nice to get an insider's perspective on like oh for so sure, we're going yeah. in September where should we eat we've eaten here here oh, and here like where next well or like, so the thing about Louisville is we have such a massive concentration of culinary talent you know aside from being a bourbon a major bourbon hub and like the place you should definitely start your bourbon vacation um we have more restaurants per capita than you know many of the large larger cities and we have just a huge concentration of culinary talent so you know like we've got chef ed lee here and you know he's got 610 magnolia and um oh gosh i can't fit milkwood and a couple of other places Mm -hmm. but you know aside from people like ed lee who are famous on the national level we have a lot of people who are famous on the local level as well and you know we've got the whole urban bourbon trail which is um you know this association of places where they have you have to have a minimum of 50 different kinds of bourbon to be in the urban bourbon trail but then a lot of them are also restaurants that have bourbon bourbon spins on their food and all that kind of stuff so and and there are always new restaurants opening up i don't know if you 
was Butchertown Grocery open the last time you were here? Because that just opened up, I I think. think I want to say they opened in November. Um, That's a really fabulous one. And, but, you know, and then, you know, the 502 Cafe even. Um, I met the owner of that a couple, maybe three years ago when I first started writing about bourbon because he does barbecue, but he does a smoked brisket sandwich with bourbon bacon jam. (laughs) And I'm just like, bourbon bacon jam? Are you kidding me? And so, like, he had a food truck before, and he just, on Monday, uh, Monday of this week, opened a brick and mortar restaurant at U of L's at the University of Louisville campus. And, you know, like the, the bourbon bacon jam and the smoked meats, you know, everybody wants to put the, put bourbon in everything now and he does it very well. So, I mean, they're just, I, I, I can, I'll give you a list when you come, I'll give you a list of places to choose from. Awesome. So I've, I've been taking Perfect. notes. All those uh, places will be on the whiskey.buzz slash the whiskey topic website in the show notes, yeah. uh, as well as anything else that you send us. No, that's great. And you've written a few articles as well, which we'll post to where you say, here's the best things to do. Oh, yeah, in, for in, sure. In for sure. Yeah. 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 Well, we'll post those for as well. For sure. And you're you're super important right now because you guys are booming. There's been more. I was, you know, reading an article on, on it came through from the Kentucky Bourbon Trail um, that was saying that I think the 2015 was the highest um, sort of biggest tourist year ever oh yeah oh yeah and you know that's that's tourism has been growing but you know one of the things i've been looking at lately is the historic roots of tourism uh bourbon tourism uh you look at a place like the old taylor distillery which is now becoming the castle and key distillery and colonel taylor designed that place with tourism in mind so he learned about um tourism and about the distilling industry he's really you know colonel taylor was the father of the modern bourbon industry um he he toured all over europe and looked and went to all the different scotch distilleries and all that kind of stuff and learned the different methods that were being used of distillation there and brought those back to kentucky and implemented those at ofc which is now buffalo trace uh and you know a number of other places i think uh somebody told me uh brett connor's out at castle and key who is their whiskey ambassador told me that he that colonel taylor was involved with i think seven modernizing seven different distilleries in the state of kentucky and of those seven six of them are still operating wow which i think is pretty impressive you know he knew what he was doing i guess lasting impact on, on the bourbon industry but not only that he was the father of the idea of bourbon tourism so he built um he built the old Taylor distillery to be a place where he could bring guests. So, you know, it's got this, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's got this beautiful limestone castle. That's the distillery mm-hmm. building. And there's, you know, this beautiful um, peristyle um, well where the water comes out. And he's got a train, you know, he built his own train station and, you know, mm-hmm. would bring people out by train during the stagecoach days before there were even cars. And, um, you know, he, he would throw these huge parties. He would throw derby parties. He would have picnics. And, and you know, he, he always had people out. And, and Castle and Key is really doing a great job of, um, you know, continuing his legacy on that because they're doing things like um, turning his office building into a bed and breakfast. And they're turning the caretaker's... So 
um, house okay. into a cabin you can rent and you can actually stay on the distillery grounds, which are just gorgeous. Awesome. So that's that's really cool. And, and Michael Veach is doing a tour of, um, you know, all these things that I've been talking about. Michael Veach is doing a tour of Colonel Taylor's influence on the bourbon industry along with mint julep tours at the end of this month june 30th i think so that sounds like fun yeah yeah those those tours are always really really fun and and you know very educational so i learn i i think it's funny i i've kind of been referring to myself lately as as mike beach's sidekick (laughs) (laughs) but every time i hang out with him you know i just i learn so much and i'll say well i thought it was this way he's like well no a lot of people think that but here's why that's not true and you know (laughs) so that's that's kind of cool Michael Beach is a oh, character. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to have him on the oh, podcast. Cause I, um, I ran into him at, at, in the bar a couple of times in Louisville, and he sold me a book and sold me a story. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And, uh, that, and had a dream. Oh, yeah, so for that's, sure. Uh, describe what it is like working with him. Is it just... You, you hear all the great wow. stories. He's been around well, for so long. He's also written a bunch yeah, of books yeah. as well I mean, about the so history. Yeah. He's, he's just the most amazing down-to-earth guy, and nobody knows more about the overall history of the bourbon industry than him. And, you know, the thing is, he's so humble about it. He always says he's the luckiest grad student ever to come out of U of L because he was hired as a grad student to work at the archives at United Distillers um, at Stitzel Weller. So that's how he kind of got his start doing this, was being an archivist for a distillery. And, you know, he had access to all the history of that distillery. And then when that was done and they closed down and closed down the archives, he went and worked for the Filson. And he was there for, you know, gosh, I think 12 or 13 14 years, something like that. And um, during that time, he wrote Kentucky Bourbon Whiskey and American Heritage, which has been, you know, pretty much the definitive work on the history of bourbon. But that's really just the basic bones of the history of bourbon. And, um, you know, there's so much more. And he's, you know, he's working on all kinds. He also works with me at the Whiskey Wash, so he contributes to the Whiskey Wash. And then um, I run his website, so he writes all these different stories all the time and that's kind of cool because i get to see all the stories before everybody else and i edit them and i you know put put them on the website and all that kind of stuff and um it's really neat and like like i was saying earlier we've also been doing a bourbon and cigar pairing study which has been really interesting um you know i've always been into cigars but it was always kind of a just a was, it wasn't anything that I was writing about or doing anything about in relation to bourbon. But when I went to a bourbon event, I would always be that weird chick who showed up with a bunch of cigars and handed them out, you know? I love it. No, I love it. It's so good. <laughs> Makes me happy. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, Michael and I got together with his friend Wayne and we just started studying it because we said, you know, like we have these theories and we need to actually, you know, get, get some of these things down on paper. So, um, it was, there was a pretty steep learning curve actually. So one of the things Mm -hmm. that I've always noticed is people get bourbon and cigar pairing wrong because people say, if you have a really strong bourbon, you should have a really strong cigar. And if you have a really, you know, mild bourbon, you should have a really mild cigar. And I've always thought that was bubkiss. So I think if you have a really 
strong cigar. You need to balance it with a sweeter, you know, if you have a really strong spicy Maduro cigar, you need to balance that with a sweeter bourbon. And if you have a lighter cigar, something with a natural wrapper or Connecticut wrapper or something like that, that is, you know, milder on, on the flavor, you want to put that with a spicier, heavier bourbon. What I did not anticipate, however, that I learned through doing this study is there's also a factor of proof. So, um, you know, I thought when we did the first cigar, which was a 1964 Padron box press natural torpedo, um, oh gosh, I can't remember which which particular one it was, but you're, you're already way ahead of us I on know, cigar right? knowledge. So. <laughs> I love it. Like, <laughs> I I predicted that it would pair best with the old granddad bonded and it ended up pairing best with the four roses yellow label and i was really surprised and and you know all everything that we everything else that we paired it with had a higher my dog is licking my toes i'm sorry i'm getting distracted ah! here i'm like what is happening <laughs> down here i'm gonna put my feet up in the chair um, <laughs> and so um I was really surprised to find that there's a function of proof in these pairings as well. And to pair with just about any kind of cigar, you really need a lower proof bourbon, something that's like a standard 80 to 100. Well, tell us about what you're drinking. So that, that that's pretty exciting. So this is the Four Roses Elliott Select, which is a barrel strength 14 year old OESK. It's a limited edition that's only going to be released in the United States. Sorry, guys. Oh, it's okay. We're down there all the they, time. Uh, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> Just save us well, a bottle. I mean, so. <laughs> I'll, I'll try. I can't make any promises because it's going to be very, very it's limited. Go. And it's coming out at the end of this month. Uh, or Wait a minute. Is the end of this month or... Yeah, I think they said the end of, the end of June. And um, so this is a notable bottle because for a number of reasons... So uh, Brent Elliott is the new master distiller of Four Roses after Jim Rutledge retired last fall. Um, but he has been behind the scenes doing a lot of stuff with Four Roses over the years. So he's worked for Four Roses for, I, I, oh gosh, I don't even want to guess how long. I want to say he's been there at least 10 years, but I could be wrong about that. Um, but one of the things that he did during Jim's tenure was he would pull the barrels for for you know special barrelings and he would kind of narrow it down to the ones that he thought Jim would like mm -hmm. and um, then he and Jim would go through them together and and Jim would make the final decision so um, he had a group of barrels that he had selected for a project that never happened and he said, you know, we need to do something with this. And, you know, the marketing people were saying, hey, when are we going to do our next, you know, barrels, small, small batch or single barrel or whatever. And um, he said, well, you know, I've got these barrels that we haven't done anything with. And I happen to think they're really good. And uh, the thing that's a couple of things that are notable here, this is his introduction as the new master distiller of Four Roses. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people are saying, why does he get a commemorative bottle? And it's not a commemorative bottle. It's his, it's, it's his introductory bottle. <laughs> um, and the other thing that's noteworthy is it's very different from anything that Jim has picked in the past. Um, you know, Jim Rutledge was um, well known for 
not liking old barrels for the sake of being old. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times the barrels that he would pick would be, you know, on the younger side, not, not younger, but you know, younger than 14 years. I, I would say that 14 years is probably, um, outside of, of what Jim would pick normally. Uh, so it's, it's a really interesting, um, bottle. Um, and that's, that's a pretty, that's a pretty, I that's a kind of a wonderful way to like present or like to introduce yourself. Yeah, and to do kind something of just very, take it, yeah, very do different. something very different. You know, and mm -hmm. it's it's not like you know with four roses. Yes, they make ten different recipes and they have you know two different mash bills and five different yeast strains and blah yada yada yada. Um, so there's not you know it's not like he can make something starkly different. But within those confines, this is very different than, than what they've done in the past. And, right. you know, I, I really like this one. Um, it, it has a little bit more age on it than most of the Four Roses products that I've had before. And uh, I think it's going to be very well received. Nice. That's right. Because this is the preview preview before it even goes on sale. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very good. Nice. So That's cheers. Great. Cheers. Cheers. And what are you yeah. drinking, Jamie? I have um, a Willet, um, that small batch rye, the two-year. Oh, yeah, fabulous. Nice. You know, Willet is yeah. one of those places that has such a fan base. They have a huge fan base. And, I mean, rightfully so. It's such a cool family, and it's such a cool story. And one of the things that Michael Veach was pointing out the other day was they were the, they're the only distillery that started off, started as a rectifier, had their own distillery, went out of business, or, or maybe they started as a distillery and then became a rectifier and then went back to having a distillery. I can't remember what the what the progression was there exactly. I admit I need to I need to get over to Willet and I need to talk to them and get a, a little bit better handle on their history. But I, you know, it's just it's a fabulous family and the distillery itself is just gorgeous and it's really exciting because they finally started releasing their first bourbon that they've made. Yeah. Um, yes. And since they started the new distillery, so that's really exciting. Yeah, because they, they basically stopped production in, like, the 60s or 70s. Right, and, right. And they almost got turned into uh, some sort of, like, oil or some other sort of, yeah, like Yeah, you said. I think it was supposed to be gasohol. Ga or, gas or, yeah, yeah gasohol. Mm -hmm. I think they called it gasohol back then. Ethanol is, is, I guess, what we call it now. But, yeah, right. I think that's what they were supposed to be doing before. And They closed but, down, yeah. and now they're distilling their own stuff. And now, so the, the exciting part is what Jamie's drinking, the two-year-old and the uh, rye, and there's the four-year-old bourbon are made there. And so all the balls that are, like, 8, 9, 10, 20, 25-year-old, those are made by other distilleries and they just bottle them that it's really exciting right now being um involved in bourbon because you know there are lots of families that are making comebacks mm -hmm. there are lots mm -hmm. of people who are just getting started um one of my favorite distilleries is kentucky peerless it's such a cool story they start um pre-prohibition kentucky peerless and um hendersonville i can't remember whether it's henderson or hendersonville um that was the second largest bourbon distillery in the state of Kentucky before Prohibition. And then Prohibition right. hit and they closed down and they started selling off their stocks and um, some things happened and they ended up completely out of the whiskey business. I think um, I think maybe there was some asset seizure by the oh, government boy. or something like mm -hmm. that. And so they were completely out of the whiskey business. And then um, the grandson and great-grandson of Henry Craver 
uh, Corky and Carson Taylor decided to restart the distillery. And so they built it uh, downtown Louisville on 10th Street. Have you been there on any of your visits to Louisville? Oh, you should really, really check it out. It is super, super cool. Um, But they have a rye whiskey aging right now. I tried it the other day. It's 13 months old right now. And at 13 months old, it is fabulous. Um, So they are going to be releasing that um, before Derby next year. So that's just really exciting. And um, it's phenomenal at 13 months old. So when it is released next year, right before Derby Day, it is going to be a two-year-old rye. And that's going to be their first um, Brown Spirits release since Prohibition, which is super exciting. Super exciting. Just looking at their website and stuff here, it looks cool. looks like an awesome place to visit. Like, we got to get there, Mark. Mm-hmm. We got to get there. Next next visit. It looks very cool. Yeah, there's, there's uh, starting to become a critical mass of uh, distilleries and visitor centers in downtown Louisville. So, you know, Louisville has really gone after the whole bourbon tourism thing and has really stepped up their game as far as, you know, being able to participate with that. So we have a number of hotels that are bourbon-centered and we have the Urban Bourbon Trail and we've got, let's see, we've got the Jim Beam Urban Still House, which I affectionately refer to as the Willy Wonka Experience of Bourbon. <laughs> and then That's we amazing. have the Evan Williams Bourbon Experience, which I affectionately refer to as the Disneyland Bourbon Experience. <laughs> Fun! And then there's Kentucky Peerless, and all three of those are open now. We also have Copper and Kings, which is an American brandy distillery, but they age their brandy and use bourbon barrels. So they're also part of the downtown distillery um, space. They have a really, they have probably one of it. Copper and Kings is one of the coolest companies around right now. They have a really cool building. They have one of the greatest views of downtown Louisville. And it's awesome. this really funky group of people. Like they play music to their barrels in the warehouse. That's right. And That's right. I heard that they're their, playing Bowie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All of their stills are named. They have three stills and they're each named after women in Bob Dylan's life. <laughs> and I mean, uh, it's, it's just this really cool, funky place to visit. And the people are just so fun. Um, and awesome. then we've got the Angels Envy Distillery, which is going in on Main Street. And then we've got the Old Forester Distillery, which is going in on Main Street. And the cool thing about the Old Forester Distillery, where it's going in, um, was one of the locations where they had their corporate offices Um I want to say in the mid-1920s for a couple of decades after that. Um, And it's also um, two doors down from JTS Brown and Sons, which was George Garvin Brown's half-brother who helped get him started in the whiskey business. Um, so that's that's a really cool location with a with an historical connection, and that is going to be a really cool experience, too. They're actually going to have a working cooperage in there where you can go in and see the barrels being raised because Brown Foreman is the only bourbon distillery or bourbon distilling company that has its own cooperage, and I think they're up to, gosh, I think they have two cooperages and and like three or four lumber mills. I mean, they they go through it. They make Massive. a lot of barrels. 
Yeah, it's that's massive. amazing. Um, I, are you um, are you seeing the the bourbon shortage there? I mean, I'm sure you are. I mean, we see it every time we go in there. We're like, we're seeing less and less products. I know you're a little more connected to the <laughs> well, industry, so okay. you can get so, a little well, bit more in. Well, the thing is, okay, so there are a couple things about that. I actually wrote a story about this uh, when I first started with the whiskey wash, and um, I, I actually relied on Michael Veach again for a lot of my historic information because... The whiskey shortage as we know it is not really a whiskey shortage. So um, historically, post-prohibition was the only time there's really been an actual whiskey shortage um, because they ran out of whiskey because they weren't, you know, there was one distiller's holiday during that entire what was it, 10, 11 year period, uh, where they were allowed to replenish their stocks for nine months or a year or something like that. And um, so when prohibition ended, uh, there was a huge shortage. It was hard to get enough supply to the market. So people were drinking whiskey that was, you know, brand new, three months old, six months old, um, so one of the things, and, and this is a really interesting historical connection here. So weeded bourbon came out of that time period. So when Pappy Van Winkle opened uh, Stitzel Weller Distillery right after Prohibition with his business partners, um, Arthur, Arthur Philip Stitzel and... Why can I never remember uh, Alex Barnsley? Yay, I remembered. <laughs> you didn't even have to Google I know, it, right? Yay. That was all me, baby. <laughs> um, so they they did two things. The first thing they did was they created a new label. I believe it was the Carolina Club label, and they came out with a three month old whiskey. And then they came out with a six-month-old whiskey. And then they came out with a one-year-old whiskey. And then they came out with a two-year-old whiskey. And then, and only then, did they have enough stocks of two-year-old aged whiskey to start selling, you know. And and back then, whiskey was a lot younger for a lot of reasons. Um, You know, there were tax implications and all that kind of stuff. Um, But that was just what people were used to drinking. Now, throughout the, you know there were a number of reasons why the bourbon industry ended up taking hits. Um, you know, when they, when the United States got involved in World War II, they had to stop production and start making ethanol for the war effort because it was used for, you know, coolant and making vulcanized rubber and all kinds of crazy stuff like that. Um, um, but still, you know, that was not a huge whiskey shortage. Whiskey was still younger back then. Most people were drinking maybe four-year-old and, and you know, old whiskey was six and eight and, you know, in, in extreme circumstances, 10 years old. And um, so the, the whiskey shortage that we're seeing now after, you know, in the 70s, people started to switch to vodka in the United States and clear spirits, gin, vodka, and stuff like that. And whiskey fell out of favor. So all of these distilleries had all this whiskey sitting around getting older and older and older. So you started to see things as whiskey started to make a comeback. You started to see a lot of really old whiskeys with age statements and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, you you didn't really have that before you know there 
20 year old bourbon was not really a thing until it was just a thing that you know we have this 20 year old 20 year old bourbon and and we're going to start selling it as really old bourbon so now those stocks are starting to deplete and they can't they don't have as much to put into like a 20 year old age statement or an 18 year old age statement or a 15 year old age statement etc etc so it's kind of just contracting a little bit but it's not the same as a whiskey shortage so we're seeing a lot of age statements being dropped and things like that but it's not because we're running out of whiskey. It's just because it's so popular that they they didn't make enough 20 years ago because they didn't know. They just didn't know. Yeah, we've been they spoiled by a lot of older whiskeys, and now that's what we that's what we term good bourbon now is like oh eight to twelve years. And right, just, right. And you know consumer pal you know consumer palates have changed and everything. Oh, but the other thing I was going to tell you so post prohibition this whiskey shortage, that's where the idea of a weeded bourbon came from. So you know, and there start there's starting to be a little bit more information emerging about you know who exactly did the first weeded bourbon recipe. But um, Pappy Van Winkle and friends out at Stitzel Weller were the ones who put weeded bourbon on the map because they felt like it would taste better at a younger age. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where that came from. And uh, so, yeah, that's I I geek out on on questions like that. I'm sorry. I know that was like I know you want me to be like, oh, yeah, gosh, I wish they would make more whiskey. Come on, guys. You know, no, 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 no. This is exactly what we want because you want you want to sort of like you know debunk yeah, there's, things there's, you know if possible. There's a lot and, of historical context there that you have to understand yeah. to answer that question. You have to like really unpack it. Well, that's the first time I sure. heard that that uh, they made uh, that they believed weeded bourbons mm-hmm. would be better younger, which kind of makes sense because you've got kinda less sense. rye notes. Right. Uh, but on yeah. the other hand, the less competition there for the yeah. the that oak flavor right. you can get right in there. Yeah. But now weeded bourbons are known for being extremely old, like the your your yeah. Poppies, well, yeah, 15, 20, a lot 23, of the Hirsch. Well, 16 plus year old and all that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's another thing I feel like, and I think probably a lot of people would agree the weeded bourbons take age more gracefully. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when you have a traditional bourbon recipe, especially a high rye bourbon recipe, if it's sitting in that barrel and it's evaporating and concentrating and concentrating and concentrating that, that rye, Mm -hmm. Plus, it's taking on all those tannins and all that, you know, all the heat from the barrel Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. That's going to end up being too hot and too spicy for the average bourbon drinker. I enjoy those, but, you know, that's Mm -hmm. not something that you can market to the masses. The wheat burp, the the weeded bourbons, um, you know, they concentrate and concentrate and concentrate, but that wheat is a sweeter flavoring grain. So you're concentrating those sugars and then you're combining it with the wood sugars and you're getting a much more pleasant product. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Totally makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Uh, We're just so lucky that bourbon tastes great after four years and mm -hmm, a day. mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But you know what? People always ask me like, oh, what's the oldest bourbon you've tried? What's the best bourbon you've tried? If I'm buying my own bourbon, which rarely happens, (laughs) I usually buy like a four-year-old bottled and bond i buy like old granddad bonded or jts brown you know yeah if i have to buy it myself like it's perfectly fine i'm not too good for a four-year-old bourbon (laughs) no it's a good spot it's a good spot 
But Baldwin Bond does seem to be the code word of Kentucky of good bourbon at a reasonable price. It's like everybody seems to respect that, uh, you know, that kind of line. Well, you know, and it's also, it's such a big part of our heritage. You know, like the Bottled and mm-hmm. Bond Act of 1897 was one of the first consumer protection laws that was ever passed in mm-hmm. the United States. It's an amazing fact. It really yeah, is. Like the, amazing fact. They didn't fact. care about yeah, food or anything yeah, else, well, but I just mean, bourbon. The Pure Food and Drug Act came shortly after that. I think the Pure Food and Drug Act was like 1906. So it wasn't too long after that. Um, but the Bottled and Bond Act came about because there were a lot of people um, who were rectifying whiskey in unscrupulous ways. They were adding things yeah. like sugar and prune juice and, and all kinds of stuff like that. But then they were also adding things like battery acid and tobacco spit and, you know, some pretty, extra flavor. Yeah, some pretty nasty stuff. And um, rattlesnake heads was another one. And yeah, I mean, there was what? some weird stuff they were putting in, in the whiskey back then. And there were no laws about it. There were no laws that said, you know, this can be called bourbon, this can't be called bourbon. And and, and so people were getting sick. And, um, you know, actually this was another thing that Colonel Taylor fought for. Colonel Taylor yeah. was a big proponent mm-hmm. of the Bottled and Bond Act. And, you know, basically what that said was all your whiskey had to be made at the same distillery in the same season, had to be aged in oak barrels for a minimum of four years and you had to put all this information on the label and had to be bottled at a hundred proof with nothing but pure water added to adjust proof. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so that was really, I mean, it, it seems so simple and so trivial to us now because we're used to these protections being in place. Um, and and this, this is why I laugh when people are like, Oh, we need to deregulate everything and just let people do whatever they're going to do and and let the market regulate itself. And it's like, well, guess what? You know, that's kind of why we have these regulations to begin with. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a big difference because, um, you know, Canada on the other side doesn't have, um, definitions of quality. So we, we just have whiskey and we have Canadian whiskey and we have whiskey and the definition is made in Canada aged blah 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 but there's not like you don't have a strictly defined rye has to follow this recipe or bourbon has to follow that recipe right um you you have minimum age laws but you don't necessarily have recipes so um it's really kind of ahead of its time because the wine industry did this as well they had like a bordeaux bordeaux has to be this it has to be 51 percent merlot and other recipes Mm -hmm. so that you have an expected flavor profile so if you're buying a bordeaux you're, you, you understand the range of flavor you're getting. Um, and that's that's where right. bourbon and straight rise and, uh, you know, Ball and Bond Act in general, all these come together to provide standards, but also kind of a profile. People know what they're buying. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other things I understand with Canadian whiskey, they are allowed to put things like caramel color in it, aren't they? Yeah, a little bit. Just like in Scots, in Scotch there okay, as well. Yeah, they they yeah. put some dabs of caramel coloring in it. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I always say to people that uh, if you buy a bourbon or a straight ride, that is the highest regulated exactly. whiskey you can buy yeah. in the world. Uh, that, all that can be added is water, and that's it. Um, that's exactly I, as far as I, I know, no other country has that. Yeah, that and that's exactly deficient. what I tell people when they start knocking the two-year-old and the four-year-old bourbons. I'm like, listen, if it has bourbon on the label, it's good mm-hmm. quality. You know, it might not yeah. be as old as you want it to be, but as long yeah. as bourbon is on that label, particularly if it says Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey, it's mm-hmm. going to be good. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. I did a tasting the other day and someone asked, you know, what, at what age, you know, was a Buffalo Trace or something like that. And I was like, well, this is probably, you know, you know, four 
four years in a day. And they were sort of like uh, single malt drinkers right. um, who want to know the age. And so it was just sort of, I was just like, but you're, you're getting something with like a, a minimum uh, like quality. Right. Like you, it's, it's built into the law. Like the quality is, is, is there. So, um, and they tried it and they were quite surprised. Yeah. And so when I told them, you know, what is made from how it's made yeah. and, and why it can be such a rich flavor after four years, it was just like, Oh, you know. So uh, bourbon has to be made from a minimum of 51% corn. Uh, it can be as high as 100% corn, though typically it's not. Um, typically you have things like rye or wheat and malted barley. Malted barley gives it that full sugar conversion. And um, it has to be barreled no higher than 125 proof, bottled no lower than 80 proof, has to be aged in charred new oak barrels. Well, it doesn't even have to be barrels, actually. It can be any kind of container. So, um, but there's no minimum age statement for bourbon, which throws people off. If it's straight bourbon, it has to be a minimum of four years. And uh, one of the things, and only pure water added to adjust the proof. So one of the things that makes Kentucky a great place to produce bourbon is we have really hot, hot summers and really cold winters. <laughs> So during the hot summers, that bourbon expands and it, it soaks into the wood. And then during the winter, it contracts back out. So you have this constant like a sponge, like wringing a sponge. So four years of that and you get a lot, you get all the color of your bourbon okay. from the barrel. You get, some people say, you know, half of the flavor some people say 75 percent of the flavor you know whatever that combination yeah. is and, and you know i'm sure it's different for every every bottle um but you get a lot of the flavor and all of the color from that barrel mm-hmm. yeah yeah and that's uh, it's pretty pretty fantastic uh, it's uh we've uh we've had uh there's previous episodes we'll look in the show notes where we talk about the whole barrel maturation and uh, and it really is just not everybody knows the full science it's right. like we kind of we understand the general theory behind it but it's like there's so much more to it than oh than, yeah uh, yeah for sure yeah it's and very, there are people who cool are starting concept. to look into you know putting in different staves for flavoring and what that mm-hmm. does to it and all that kind of stuff but then there's the other side of it where people are saying well once you put in a different stave it's not bourbon anymore and all that kind of stuff yeah. so I mean, it really, as long as they're oak staves, it can be any kind of oak staves. So, you know, mm-hmm. like the Makers 46 uses uh, French oak staves okay. that are toasted. And then they, they're doing their private barrel selection now where they have a bunch of different kind of oak staves with a bunch of different treatments and chars. And, you know, one of them is ridged and grooved and, yeah. and all kinds of different stuff like that. So there, there's just a lot that can still be done with the barrel science for sure. Doesn't Fred No have the uh, the expression that hey, I could just pour uh, spirit into this bucket and carry it twenty feet, and that's it. You've got yourself I some whiskey. That, I, I, I <laughs> almost brought that up. I think that was Jimmy Russell. I've heard that attributed Jimmy to Jimmy Russell, but I, it could be either <laughs> one of them. I mean, and they're both just such wonderful, hilarious people. And they chat together all the oh, time, yeah. so I'm oh, sure yeah. they, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's something from the bourbon industry that you don't see in any other industry I know of is the camaraderie that happens among distillers uh, and, you know, the production mm-hmm. side of people. It might not be true of the salespeople and the corporate people, but <laughs> as far as the production, <laughs> the marketing. yeah, as far as the production is concerned, everybody, um, you know, it's like, it's like one big family. 
Yeah, we noticed that when we were in Kentucky and when we've talked about it sort of previously when we came back and I was especially enchanted mm-hmm. by it yeah, is that is that camaraderie and the and the uh, the feeling of the distillery, the sense of community yeah. that exists within each distillery but also as a community of distilleries um, mm-hmm. and how much everybody really really likes each other. Oh yeah, um, I mean and so, if anybody yeah. ever has a problem everybody pitches in, you know, there was the big fire yeah. at Heaven Hill back in the 90s where they lost That's right. They lost like five or six warehouses and a fight like lightning struck and it just spread mm-hmm. and there was like river of flaming bourbon and all that kind of stuff yeah. and while they were getting back on their feet a lot of the distilleries around them made bourbon for them made spirits for That's them correct. so that they could keep yeah keep on keeping on you know which yeah who if if you run out of ketchup is your ketchup competitor gonna make ketchup for your ketchup label right like no. no, they're busy making exactly. their own ketchup. Exactly. 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 No, it's not. I've, I'm, you know, we were talking, uh, you know, to a couple of the master distillers, and they said the exact same yeah. thing. Like, if a, something breaks or something shuts down on one of my machines, like, I just run, you know, I just give up a call, and, and I run next door, and I and I grab it from, you know, whatever distillery is just down the Absolutely. road. And that's really, yeah. it's nice it to is. hear. It you is. know, and it, it's, it's, nice. it's a very... Um, it's it's a family it's you know a very genteel um business to be in people people are very cordial to one another that is a great word genteel, genteel yes that's v- a great had word to, to it's a very great tucky word my southern diction yeah southern <laughs> perfect it's perfect I love it. Oh well, Maggie, That's thank you good. so much for coming on. Thank you so much for coming on. You're making me, you're making me daydream of Kentucky now. Yes, Let's go. Well, we definitely <laughs> try to get together when you come. Definitely, yes, definitely. Uh, where sure. can people find you on the internet? So I have a website. It's lugirl502.com. L-O-U-Girl502, which is the area code in Louisville. And uh-huh. you can find me on Twitter at lugirl502 and on Instagram at lugirl502. Um, that's really the best way to find me. Awesome, awesome. Amazing. Uh, and I'm at Mark Bylock on Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram. And Jamie, you're at Bourbon Thing. I'm at Bourbon Thing on Twitter and Instagram. And ugh, Snapchat is, is so, I can't you're get behind it, you guys. You're, you're just not, you're, you're not doing it. I'm just not into it because I just like looking at, every, I like looking at my pictures and they disappear on Snapchat. And I'm like, well, why am I doing this? What's happening? Why did that go away? Like, I love that picture. So, no, Instagram's better than Snapchat. I'm just going to say. I'm putting it out there. Controversy. <laughs> you picked it. You picked your medium. You're, you're good. You're good. I picked my medium. Instagram at Bourbon Thing. There you go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, we'll be back next week. Cheers. Crazy.